This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 130 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an incredibly talented and fascinating guy who was nominated for the Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay Oscars for his work on a semi-autobiographical film that is nominated for the Best Picture Oscar and that has firmly established him as one of the most respected and wanted directors in Hollywood. I'm talking about Moonlight's Barry Jenkins. Whatever happens at the Oscars, Jenkins, who's 37, has had a hell of an award season. Moonlight, the story of a young man growing up black and gay in Miami, is only the second feature he's ever directed, after 2008's highly acclaimed and underseen Medicine for Melancholy. Moonlight was unveiled over Labor Day weekend at the Telluride Film Festival, a place near and dear to Jenkins' heart for reasons we discuss and it was greeted from its very first screening with massive acclaim. It continued to gain momentum as the season went along, ending 2016 as the year's best-reviewed film, with a 98% favorable rating on RottenTomatoes.com. And now, as the season winds down, we can report that Jenkins was chosen as the year's best director by the National Society of Film Critics, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, the New York Film Critics Circle, and the National Board of Review and was nominated for that distinction by the Directors Guild of America and both Golden Globes and Critics' Choice voters. And that the script that he co-authored with Terrell Alvin McCraney, whose unproduced play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue inspired it, won the USC Scripter and Gotham Awards for Best Screenplay, and was nominated for that distinction by Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, and BAFTA voters. Between now and the Oscars, the script also will be up for a Writers Guild Award, and both Jenkins' direction and the script are nominated for Spirit Awards. Jenkins and I sat down for his last interview of the long awards season at his downtown Los Angeles apartment and had a conversation in the middle of a rainstorm that you might hear hints of in the background that touched on a wide range of topics. Among other things, we talked about how his childhood resembled and differed from that of Moonlight protagonist Chiron's, what inspired his passion for writing, And then, once at FSU, filmmaking as well. How a close network of friends from FSU subsequently banded together to help him make Medicine for Melancholy and then years later Moonlight, both movies about race and identity in America. What happened during the eight years that passed between the releases of those films that left him on the verge of quitting the business. And how, against all odds, everything came together on Moonlight a film made for only $1.5 million in just 25 days and with but one camera, and what he makes of its remarkable success. 
So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Barry, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Although this first question is somewhat addressed in Moonlight, we always begin by asking, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? So oh, start there. That's an interesting starting place, but I guess it is the beginning. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, which is very clear from, from Moonlight, I guess. And my mom was a nurse, just like Naomi Harris's character, Paula, in the film. My dad, I have no idea what he did. I actually have no idea. Uh, true, truly who my dad is. Really? Yeah, it's just a very complicated thing uh, that I'm still trying to figure out to this mm-hmm. day. You know, one of the things about making Moonlight that's been interesting is it's opened up a lot of things between myself and my mom. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we will talk about some of these things. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that shaped you as a person? Not to harp on it, but I mean, we, we just had a wonderful president who said he was very much shaped by sort of this search for his father and questions about him and all of that. I wonder, do you think it impacted who you became? I mean, certainly, absolutely. But but it wasn't in the way, in the same, it didn't function the same for me as it did for the president or the former president, mm-hmm. I should say. I, I just, I just kind of took it off the table. You know, I just considered myself a fatherless person mm-hmm. and I was sort of fine with that. You know, I think it's part of the reason why I want to read Sorrell's piece. I kind of was taken by this this, this father figure character of Juan, who's no blood relation to our main character. You know, I played sports growing up, and I remember looking to my coaches mm-hmm. to sort of be the father figures, the role models. But there's a there's a certain distance or remove in a paternal relationship like that. Mm-hmm. But I just accepted that I was a fatherless person. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was 23 or 24 that I even got really curious about it. I was mm-hmm. forced to be curious about it, by the way, by this director who I was assisting at the time, named Darnell Martin, because she just refused to believe that someone who was my father wouldn't want to accept me. And her, her reasoning was, because you're so great, yeah, that, no, if, that mean, if, someone, I... if someone was your dad, they would want to claim you. And so it sent me back home to ask all these questions about who my dad actually was. And that's when I realized that nobody really knew. You also have said that aside from occasionally bumping into her, and, and this is in some ways referenced in Moonlight as well, you didn't really grow up that much around your mom either, right? True. So, so who were for you the the Juan and Teresa in your life, the people that were just making sure you had the the basic things you needed to grow up and be happy and healthy? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. So, hmm, how do I get at this? It's a really complicated thing sure. to draw to draw these lines, <laughs> but 
essentially, so I am named after a man who was my father per my birth, birth certificate. Yeah. I look nothing like that man. That man never had any children, even though he remarried. I, I actually believe that that man was not capable of having mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. which is why my mom was pregnant with me. Mm-hmm. That guy skedaddled. But his mom refused to believe that I wasn't her, her grandchild. And so she raised me in a certain sense. And then my mom was taken in at a very young age. My mom had her first child at the age of 15 and her second child by the age of 16. And she was taken in by a woman like Teresa. And once things got bad and my mom got extremely addicted to crack cocaine, that woman then took me into her home. So I was raised by these these two women who I'm pretty sure were no blood relation to me, a yeah. woman named Margaret and a mer- woman named Minerva, who were my grandmas, essentially. Wow. And who is Pamela Gilzo Rodriguez? Ha, I know you've done your research. <laughs> so Pamela Gilzo Rodriguez, when I knew her, was just Pamela Gilzo. <laughs> she was my third grade teacher at the school, Holmes Elementary, which is literally meant to be the school that Little attends yeah. in Moonlight. And she was, we've actually reconnected because of the film. I've been spending so much time in Miami. She was a woman from New Jersey, either New Jersey or the Bronx, blonde hair, blue eyes, who moved to Miami to make a difference and ended up at this this elementary school in, in the hood, essentially. And I, I remember at that time, I wasn't a very good student, but my grandma, Margaret, would take me fishing on the weekend. So I would get out of the projects and go into the Everglades, into the wilderness, essentially, and when I came back on Mondays, Ms. Pamela Gilza Rodriguez would ask me what I had done, and she would force me to write it down and then have me read it to the class. Because her thinking was, nobody else gets to get out of this place on the weekends. You do. You should share that with the rest yeah. of the class. And it was the first experience I had with storytelling. Wow. And I remember it made me, I don't know if I, I, like, I had pride in myself or for being able to tell a story that people wanted to hear or that people thought it had merit. But I went from being like a C or D student to being like an A student. I had her in third and fourth grade. And then, of course, she relocated. And I continued on. Mm-hmm. So as you went through the rest of, of your school days leading up through high school, what did you imagine your future as an adult was going to look like? And did you have any specific dreams or ambitions? No, no, no specific dreams or ambitions. I thought I'd be a high school English teacher. You know, there weren't a ton of kids who went to college who weren't athletes where I was from. So I became an athlete. Mm-hmm. I tried that. Football, right? But yeah, I played high school football and I ran track. I was pretty good at it, but I mean, my high school football team, this is like really good. I mean, there were three running backs on my high school football team. Two made it to the NFL. Wow. The other one is talking to you. Wow. So that's, that's, that's how good of a team it was. And my mom actually got herself together around, I think I was like 14 or 15, but she was HIV positive. And at the time, this is like the early to mid 90s. Mm-hmm. Nobody was sure what that was like. And then there had been so much time that we had been apart. So we didn't move back in together. I actually ended up moving in with my older sister at that point. And there was just this sort of like unspoken thing that I was going to go to college somewhere. Because you'd been a good student. Because I'd been a good student and, and it just seemed like that was the thing to do. I had to get out of Miami. There was just this, this, this sort of muted drumbeat. You have to get out of Miami. Mm-hmm. And state schools, there was this, this Florida lottery at these scholarships for people who had good grades. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, I'll apply to all the state schools. And Florida State was the school I ended up at. In Tallahassee, right? In Tallahassee, Florida. You were there, and as I understand it, for a while figuring out what what you wanted to be majoring in there and, and wavering on that. I mean, what was that evolution, and how did you end up on the film track there? See, it's interesting. Wavering isn't even what I would say. <laughs> I, I, I went there, I was like, I'm going to be an English teacher. And the university at the time, and I'm speaking of 1998, it's a much better university now. I got to go on record as saying that. (laughs) 
However, my first semester there, there was this huge scandal where the education department lost its certification, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it was going to take like three semester cycles before it got back up to speed. So it was impossible to get an education degree at, at Florida State at that time. So I switched to English literature and then I switched to creative writing because there was such a shortage of African-American teachers in the state of Florida at the time that I thought, oh, if I just get a really strong foundation and an English degree, I can still go home and teach and I'm sure I can figure out how to get the education certificate. But then when I started reading, I was like, well, I also enjoy writing. I remember this thing from way back when. And so I switched to creative writing. I'm a massive football fan, as, mm -hmm. as clearly stated by my high school pedigree. Right. And so I was spending a lot of time at the stadium for two reasons. One, the football games right. are there. But then also the best cafeteria, this hidden cafeteria <laughs> on campus, was at the stadium. It's where right. all the athletes ate. And anybody could eat there if you knew where to find it. <laughs> and so I just kept going there. And I would always pass these signs that said it was the Florida State School of Motion Picture, Television, and Recording Arts. And I just thought, man, what, 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 there's a film school at Florida State and it's at the football stadium? And then eventually I walked past it enough. And this is when I fully immersed myself in the creative writing program that I knew I wanted to now follow the creative arts. And so I just thought, oh, you have to write movies. I'm writing short stories. I can write movies. I'm going to apply to the film school. And that was how it happened. And in terms of getting in, how does that work? Do you have to submit work do you, or do you have to just have good grades leading up to that point? No, or? you have to submit work. And, and it was there were two ways to enter the school. There were people who came in from high school and then people they considered transfers, people who had done a couple years of undergrad at other programs but hadn't finished an undergrad degree. I was going to apply as a transfer. And I remember at the time there was a problem where there were very, very few black students in the film school. There was maybe like one black student in the film school at that time. And my class had the most black students in the history of Florida State <laughs> Film School to that point. Which I mean, was like, what, how many? I mean, they only admit 30 kids, so it's, yeah. it's actually very selective. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, Wes Ball was yeah, admitted yeah. at the same time as I, as I, this guy who directs the Maze Runner yeah. movies, T.S. Nowlin also. Uh, David Robert Mitchell was entering the grad program at the time. And I remember interviewing, and we got in, and of the, like, 30 students, there were five of us who were wow. black. Okay. And it was like a watershed <laughs> moment. And I applied as a, as a screenwriter. And so I, I submitted my short stories because I'd done nothing with the camera at that point. Well, I'd never I, even touched a camera. In fact, let me ask you this. How much of a part of your life up to that point had movies even been? Had you grown up with them at all? None. I, I, grew, up the, I grew up with them in the way that a kid who grew up where and how I grew up would grow up with them. You know, when The Color Purple came out, everybody in my family went to see it. When Coming to America came out, everybody in my right. family went to see it, like eight times. You know, right. same thing with Harlem Nights and Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society. So I was that kind of a movie right. watcher, but I never considered making movies myself. Although I, I do remember, though, we were very, very poor. And there were times where... The water would be off, and yet somehow we still have cable. You know, I mean, part of that was because back then the cable man hustle was quite strong. Right. You know, this is where you like tap into your neighbor or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But but we were always watching, and it was a very communal experience. You know, it was a very broken family. There were just pieces from all over the place. There'd be like eight of us in a two bedroom apartment, but people would get together to watch movies. And yeah. that's where you cross paths, I guess, with Die Hard. I think that was your favorite at Die the time. Die Hard was my favorite. <laughs> I used to love that movie. It's the first film where I remember watching the credits roll and realizing, oh, wow, it took a lot of people to make this movie happen. Right. Yeah, for a long time, that movie and Toy Story were, were, were my favorites. That's great. So now, flashing back to becoming a part of this program at FSU, mm -hmm. the film program, I guess in the midst of this, you decided to take a year off. 
Yeah, because it was it was a rude awakening. Like I said, you know, Wes was a classmate of mine, you know, and, and I should say Wes and I are friends. Mm-hmm. Wes actually, in a roundabout way, co-funded my first film, Medicine for Melancholy. That's why wow. he's in the special thanks on that film. Wow. But Wes was a genius, you know. He was literally remaking Pixar animated shorts, like on a Bolex camera, doing all in-camera transitions. I mean, he was just fantastically gifted and a very generous guy. But I realized very quickly that I couldn't do what Wes, what Wes was doing. Because I didn't know you needed light to expose film. Mm-hmm. We shot everything on film mm-hmm. back in those days. And so, you know, it was a, a rude awakening because, one, you know, I didn't want to carry the stigma that I was only in the film school because I was black and the film school needed black students. But a black student like me, from my background, simply didn't have the tools to harness their voice. I didn't know you needed light to expose film, literally. I don't know how to physically do this. Mm-hmm. And so... I went to the dean at the time and I said, look, I really want to be here and and thank you for allowing me in, especially considering I don't have the skills these other kids have. Mm -hmm. But would you allow me to take a year off Mm -hmm. and I'll go and teach myself these very rudimentary, the fundamentals of the craft and I'll come back and I'll be a useful student to you. And so I was already doing my creative writing degree. And so I have two bachelors from Florida State. So while I took a year off from, from film school. I just took a, a, load of, a load of credit hours and finished my creative writing degree. Wow. So I have two separate bachelors from Florida State. Amazing. And all the while, I took a still photography class, making my own 35 millimeter prints, and got a subscription to Sight and Sound. I wanted to read the best film criticism in the English language, mm-hmm. and I was told it was Sight and Sound. Mm-hmm. And I started watching just a ton of and foreign films. In terms <laughs> of watching the films, let's just, just as to sort of set the scene, where were you getting them and where were you watching them? Now, there were two different places. Uh, I bought an all-region DVD player mm-hmm. off eBay, and I started buying things off eBay. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually still have it. I bought one car wise box set off eBay, and I realized now they were these bootleg, like very <laughs> low quality transfers from Asia. Got those shipped over. I got Kozlowski, the Decalogue, mm-hmm. and then I went to Blockbuster, and you know, it's Tallahassee is a very small right. foreign film section. But you could rent your way through it if you yeah, wanted to. Yeah. And so I just rented my way through it over the course of that year. And then you would take them to your dorm room or where would you take them? I had an off-campus apartment with a guy I went to high school with. And so it was funny. He thought I was an alien. He's like, what the <laughs> hell are you watching? You know? <laughs> do you speak French now? No, I do not. <laughs> and, and I mean, it is, I guess, a, a somewhat understandable question because most people, when they decide they're going to really dive into film there's they don't immediately go to Kieslowski there's a Mm -hmm. you knew though from what sight and sound that this is where you should be looking exactly and and also too like I said I Wes was remaking these Pixar Mm -hmm. shorts and then he was doing certain things in his own way but I saw very clearly the things you watch Mm -hmm. inform the things you make and I thought because of the stories I knew I wanted to end up telling Mm -hmm. telling them in the way of Pixar wasn't going to be a good match you know and I should say, I already said Toy Story is one of my favorite films yes. because I have four nieces and nephews. I would watch these movies with them. They were very young then. Yeah. I watched these movies over and over yeah. again. And so I've probably seen Toy Story at least, no exaggeration, 250 <laughs> times, no exaggeration. But I knew the stories I was going to end up telling, they were going to need a different sort of prism, mm-hmm. you know, and I and often found that the place for that or the, the most readily available influences I could see that, that could harness these stories was in, in foreign film, yeah. And some of these even were, were at that point still Laserdiscs, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, so those I had to watch in the film school. In the film library. school had Laserdisc players, and they actually had a pretty awesome criterion library of yeah. Laserdisc films. And so a lot of Kubrick um, that I was watching, I was watching with a roommate on yeah. Laserdisc in the film school library. Wow. So at the end of that 
that year that you'd taken off from the film side of things, you go back and from things that I've read and heard other people say, you were a totally different person and filmmaker. And in fact, I guess you went to work at that point on, on the short that became in 2003, My Josephine, which according to these folks, I haven't, I'd love to see it. I haven't yet had a chance to see that became sort of legendary there. And just to tell me if any of this is wrong, but my understanding this, you know, again, it's, it's being made very shortly after 9-11. It's about a Middle Eastern couple who own a laundromat and advertise that they'll wash American flags for free. And people just were blown away by it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, it's pinned to the top of my, my Twitter profile. So if you go to my Twitter oh, page, you'll see. Because yeah. I have it up on Vimeo. It's also on Fandor. And, and yeah, so I wrote it a little bit after 9-11, so in early 2002. And then we had to actually shoot it, I think, in 2003. And it was interesting. You know, we shot everything on film. So I think we had like 1,200 feet of film. So the shooting ratio was not high. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of pulling from everything around me. There was actually a laundromat in Tallahassee that had a sign that said American flags clean free. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that is very interesting. And it was run by an Arab-American couple. And I was just trying to find a way. Because I've been watching all these Warren Car Y films, and I was feeling, mm-hmm. I was seeing myself in them. People were saying being Arab or being Muslim in America is the new black, mm-hmm. you know, kind of as a as a dark a dark joke. Right. And I thought, oh, well, let me take what it feels like to be a black man in the South, and and empathize, you know, mm-hmm. with these characters who now are the new black. And I remember the third roommate because it was myself, James Laxon, cinematographer, mm-hmm. and this other kid was living with us, and the other kid was obsessed with Napoleon. So he was just walking around the house all the time stating all these facts about Napoleon, that Napoleon had two loves, you know, Mary Louise and Josephine. Josephine for love and Mary Louise for an heir. And so the title of the film is My Josephine because it's about this guy and this duality, his love for his culture back in the Middle East, but also his adopted home in the U.S. And how those things are filtered through this act of nurturing, of washing these flags. And it worked. <laughs> it's a wild short. It's only right. seven minutes because the film school was very disciplined. We could only, the films had to be seven minutes. You know, they could be eight minutes with credits. I think it helped because we only had 1,200 feet of film to shoot them right. on. And it worked. And what was the reaction from the people around you when they saw that? I I, I want to be modest, but it was, <laughs> it was, one, the film school at that time had only been around for about 12 years. I don't think anybody had made a film there that wasn't in the English language, or at least nobody who who only spoke English as a language had made something outside that language. This movie is in English, French, and Arabic. And it was just, especially for someone who had essentially gone, hey, I can't do this. Right. I'm going to leave for a year. I think it was, yeah, it was shocking. And it gave you... A, a, a newfound confidence? It, it did, because this has happened a few times in my life, but this was the time that I can look at it and most critically say, this is exactly how I felt. You know, I asked myself the question, am I not good at this because I'm poor and I'm black and my mom was addicted to drugs and I have no idea who my father is? Mm-hmm. Or do I just not have the tools to do this? And can I go step aside and teach myself these tools and come back and prove that I can do this, you know, mm-hmm. and prove that my voice can stand beside these others. And nobody was, was that was me placing those pressures mm-hmm. on me and not anyone else. Like I said, you know, kids like Wes and, and Justin Barber and T.S. Nallen, they were all very kind to me and very nurturing in a way, even though my stuff didn't look like everyone else's in that first semester. But I still had that feeling in the back of my head, you know, am I here mm-hmm. only because, you know, and making this film kind of pushed right the hell through that. Now, when you, did you graduate in 2003? I did. So I actually made two short films in that year, both shot by James Laxton, my Josephine and another film called Little Brown Boy. And then we were out in December of that year. And prior to that, I guess a year before that, was your first 
introduction to the Telluride Film Festival, which I want to bring in here. It was, it was, it was right. I, I came back and and wrote a rewrite of my Josephine right after Telluride. I was there at two, 2002 Student Symposium, mm-hmm. and I came back that semester. I met Lynn Ramsey, David Cronenberg, Tillman Bittner. where you, you like applied. Yeah, like- yeah, so so you write an essay, and it's a great program that's been around for I don't know, 25 years. Mm-hmm. It was written by a woman named Kate Sibley, who, who retired recently, but you, know, you write an essay, and you have to be a college student, mm-hmm. but you don't have to be a film person. There were like doctoral candidates, there were people in residency who just wanted a break. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing. And the essay is, they have the same prompt to this day. If you could take any film into the future, what film would it be and why? And I chose Chunking Express because, of <laughs> course, I'm the Warren Carl Y guy. And I got in. That's awesome. I got in. This was at the end of that year I took off. Yes. So at the very end of this year, I'm at this place. And the way they, they, they organize it is you don't see everything at the festival, but you see a lot. Yeah. You have a schedule of when you have to see films as a group. You go back to a school. The director walks in. And you just talk for an hour. You basically have a private Q&A with the director, just students. And 2002 was amazing. a hell of a year. It was an amazing yeah. year. I mean, there were certain films they kept from us, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But it was an amazing year. Do you year. remember what you saw? I saw, oh man, uh, City of God, Morvern Caller. Uh, even D.A. Pennebaker was there. Tuman Butner was there, who shot Russian Ark. Got to meet him. I mean, it was just out of this world. And out so of this world. you knew you wanted to maintain that involvement of somehow with Telluride, which oh, you did. At the last session, they come back in and they go, these two guys from work production, this guy Jim Bedford and a guy named Lawrence Van Hoy goes, hey, we, if you guys enjoyed this, you can come back next year as a production intern. And then they go, we actually call them dogs because it's <laughs> grueling work, but you get to be here for two months in the summer. And then it all so ends with the festival. Everything? They give you a, a condo, you know, but you're just like almost like college. You yeah. share this condo with like eight other kids. Yeah. And so I did that the next year. In the summer? In the summer. Yeah. So I used to spend the entire summer in Telluride. I'd get there like mid-July and be there all the started for years of doing this, right? Really, since 2002, you kept that up. Every single year. And so what, what started as being there for the, for the student symposium became being, as you say, a, a dog or an intern. And yeah. then what? How did it evolve from there? And then when I made Medicine, we're jumping ahead now. When I made Medicine in 2008, my first film, Medicine mm-hmm. for Melancholy, which was made for a budget of about 13 grand, yes. that was kind of co-financed by Wes Ball and Justin Barber. The director saw me on the circuit, you know, doing introductions and, and Q&As of my own mm-hmm. film. And they thought, oh, this guy's kind of interesting. We need to elevate what he does at the festival. Because I was still just doing... You were going to keep coming back. I, yeah, no matter what. Yeah. And, and even that year, I, I went to Telluride and I flew directly from Telluride to Toronto right. to screen my own film, which was amazing. Because at that point, they were... They did not screen medicine, right? They did not, but but that's that, that's on me. I didn't submit it. Okay. It just didn't. I just didn't think that it would. You know, you got for me. Tell your ride is like the oh, top sure. of the mountain. Of course, of course. And when I make my little thirteen thousand dollar film, I don't think, hey, because I work here, they're going to play my film. So you were I, biding your time a little I, bit. I didn't even didn't even tell them about it. Right. I mean, I, I even got a, got a little shit for it. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, why why did you not tell us right. about this movie? Like, right. I, I didn't think you guys would play it. Right. I didn't make that mistake this time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was there. I, I remember that. So, but and in fact, you eventually became a, a programmer there, right? Yeah, programming. And the that's short like films. a full time position, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, it was a serendipitous turn. Events. Godfrey Reggio had done it for years and years and years, and I think when he made his last film, the film, his most recent feature, he was just too busy mm-hmm. to do it. And so he had seen me around. He was a big fan of Madison. So between him and Tom Luddy, it just became this thing where oh, we'll we'll, we'll let Barry do it. You and know, does and that mean that you had to 
what what did that involve? You were there a lot, or you were able to do it from where else, wherever could, you were living? I could do it from from wherever else I was. I mean, I had to present them during the festival, yeah. but it just became this thing where now instead of eh, it's kind of cool, I haven't thought of this. Instead of being a kid washing toilets and tell you right, I say washing toilets. That was part of the job, right. but you're also right. you know you're hammering things and because right. you know all the theaters we build the two months before. Yeah. Instead of doing those things now in the comfort of my own home, I'm watching all this work yes. coming in from all over the world all these short films to try to choose 18, you know, that screen during the festival. And then the, the thing that I found kind of amazing is that you became a, a, a moderator of Q and A's there as well, including something that was there three years exactly before Moonlight, 12 years a slave right after the world premiere, I, which I was at this screening and I, I didn't know you, but I, I certainly remember the Q and A you did that. And in fact, it was out of that, evening that Moonlight first came to the attention of Kleiner yeah. and these guys from Plan B, right? Yeah, it was. When I made Medicine back in 08, I had a few meetings yeah. with Jeremy and Didi. You know, nothing really came of it. We talked about a few things, but nothing came of it. And we had kind of lost touch. And so, I mean, I think a lot of things in my life up to this point have been, I don't know, luck, timing, however you want to describe it. But I flew directly from Europe where I'd done the first adaptation of Terrell's piece and Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue directly to Telluride, because that's what I do. No matter what I do in my life, yeah. Telluride is always going to be this fixture. Exactly. Yeah. And so I get there, and you know, I'm pretty high up at the festival. Mm-hmm. I'm high, higher up now than I was in 2013, mm-hmm. but I'm still not at the height height. Mm-hmm. So like everyone else, I don't know what's going to be there mm-hmm. until I'm there. <laughs> and so I didn't find out I was going to do this introduction Q&A until, I want to say, eight hours before. And you had seen, though, the movie? No. You hadn't seen it until eight hours before. No, no, I, I saw it with you, and then I moderated and the Q and A. And then you improvised the Q and A. No, not, not improvised. I'm a filmmaker, you know. And I've been reading. I've been preparing for this moment. I've been reading Sight and Sound for years. Oh, you know, yeah. I've been I've been seeing Q and As. I've done Q and As of my own. It was just another thing. And was that film though in particular? I mean, it's tough. I I moderate a lot of Q and As mm-hmm. just in my job. I do not like going in there without having done a lot of prep and, and notes because I just am afraid I'm going to get caught looking like an idiot Mm -hmm. and that's even for for you know mediocre forgettable movies this was a major and emotionally impactful movie so for you did it what was that like you know i think the thing uh, i'll speak about julie hunsiger as far as this goes i think julie knows i'm a person that loves cinema and i think she knew i would love this film which i did yes i was a fan of steve of steve's work absolutely and i think she we talked about a little bit you know she just said you know just speak about you know, what you want to speak about of the film, you know, and then with a little side conversation of, but no, this is not about you, right, you know, right, right. you know, it's about the film and about the festival. And we had a little pre-talk beforehand. Had you met Steve before? I had. Okay, I had, so there I was had. at least some level of familiarity and comfort. And I mean, I don't know how familiar he was with me. I was right, very right, familiar right, with him. Right. And it was a lovely experience, you know, yeah. uh, and I'll say this, I I saw the first press conference in Toronto and it was not the press conference that I had. No, you I did a good job. No, you right. did a good so, job. So, so maybe they, they, they were on to something, and you know. Just Thank God you were there because, again, who knows, just throughout this whole 2002 onwards, uh, if if you had not been there having done the, the grunt work early on, then you wouldn't have been there to do the Q&A with these guys, which means you wouldn't have been there to have that conversation exactly. about because, Moonlight. Because what happened afterwards was it went so well. Everybody was in a very good mood. And I remember, yeah. yeah, the q and I remember it was either... Jer- uh, uh, Jer- it was Jeremy, Brad, and Didi. They were all around. It's like, hey, so, so what are you doing now? Yeah. I was like, well, actually, I just 
adapted this piece by Terrell McCraney. They knew exactly who Terrell was because yeah. they're Plan B. Yeah. And and the and the word was, oh, that sounds amazing. You know, when it's ready, you know, give it to us. You know, That's we love to read great. it. And then three years later, as you say, we premiered Moonlight at that same festival. Oh my God. I wanted to moderate my own Q and A, but yeah. that was impossible. <laughs> that was impossible. I joke. I joke. Also, I'll say this about Telluride too. A lot of the the moderators there. That's not what they do as an occupation. So I think there's a different vibe mm-hmm. to a Telluride Q&A or a Telluride moderation when it comes from in-house. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that's also part of the reason why I assume you know, I was given the first one. Because I, I didn't do the second or the third. I only did right. that first one. Well, also probably everybody else was clamoring. They wanted their their shot with these guys because that was pretty clear out of that first screening. This was the the movie of that year. as And, you know, similar vibe after after the first screening of Moonlight there, which which I also remember. But coming back, because you brought up Medicine for Melancholy, and this was the, the first feature that you made and came out in 2008. First of all, just to set the scene for this, how in 2007 did you wind up in San Francisco? And what were you doing out there? Basically, I worked here in 2004, 2005 in L.A. I was working at Harpo Films, Miss mm-hmm. Winfrey's company, working with Kate Forte. And Donnell Martin, who directed this movie, There Eyes of Watching God, I was her assistant. Mm-hmm. She just had this reputation for taking not necessarily at-risk youths, mm-hmm. but people who are going to have a harder time breaking into the industry and choosing them as her assistant. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was her, I was her kid, yeah. and she was great. She, I was on that movie from pre-pro all the way through post. Mm-hmm. She just wanted me to see and learn everything. But afterwards, you know, I was a kid who only knew filmmaking from film school, where you're guaranteed to make a film. You know, state of Florida, they pay for all the equipment, they pay mm-hmm. for all the film stock, they pay for all the processing. It was a very privileged way to learn, whereas in L.A., nobody's going to give you anything. <laughs> and so uh, I was young. I should, Looking back on it now, I was in a great position. Jeez. Yeah. But in my head, I was like, yeah, this is this is not what I is. I don't know what filmmaking is. Uh, this is all this other stuff. And, and so I actually decided I got really jaded on Hollywood in Los Angeles, and, and I left. I, I cashed in my 401k, my very mm-hmm. generous 401k mm-hmm. that I got from Harpo. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the economic collapse that happened in 2008, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. Right. And, you know, and I was, as a kid who grew up poor, and now I had like eight grand. Right. And so I just, for a year, I took trains around the U.S. I do like a month here, two months there. I met a woman in San Francisco early in that trip. I basically went L.A. to San Fran, Chicago, New York. And what were you doing Florida. in all these places? I, just, I wanted to see the country, yeah. you know. At that point, I, this is weird. I'd only, I'd only been to like four cities at that point. Miami, mm-hmm. Tallahassee, Telluride, Colorado, and yeah. L.A. <laughs> what a weird... That is a very <laughs> yes. weird... So I hadn't seen any of the country. I was like, right. I need to see more. Right. And so I just took these trains all around. And but you figured you just live off for a little bit, the 401. I'm or, just going to burn through it. Yeah. It's like, this is going to be, you know, some kids take a European vacation, yeah. you know? I'm, I'm so going to... summer abroad. Exactly. Yeah. My year. year I stress abroad. it out to a year because I would get little jobs here and there. But I met a woman in San Francisco very early in that trip. And when the trip was done, I moved back there uh, to be with her. Mm-hmm. And, and then when she broke up with me, I wrote Medicine for Melancholy. Well, about. let's let's explain. <laughs> yeah, because so uh, part of this was did, that. Can you tell I'm trying to speed through this part? No, well, we won't we won't harp on her. But the but the connection is important because she was, I, I believe it's the case, a white woman. Mm-hmm. And you had a joint, I guess, network of friends. Mm-hmm. And then when that relationship was over... You I had, had no friends. You had no friends. Well, 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 she had her friends. Yeah. And she was always around them. So I was kind of uh, alone in the city for the first time. And there was a lot of stuff about San Francisco at that time that I felt like I had access to because I was with her. 
that I no longer had the same kind of access to. And that kind of hit home there at that point, which was also just to remind people chronologically, just before racism went away forever with the election of Obama, right? Literally right before. Yes, yes. Literally right before. (laughs) So now you're... Let the record show that's that's the biggest smile Scott has given you in his interview. Yeah. So now your your own conflicted feelings at that point about race are essentially what ended up being the two positions of the characters, mm-hmm. Mika and Joe, in this in this film. And I guess, again, stop me if any of this is a, a poor description of it, but essentially these are two young black hipsters in San Francisco, a city with only 7% black population who have been involved very recently with white romantic partners, then have this one night stand together and then converse about what it's like to be black in San Francisco. And they were espousing your own conflicting feelings at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say that's a pretty accurate description. Yeah. Yeah. So when did it occur to you that that was something that should be put onto the page? You know, I was, oh, put onto the page pretty, pretty early. Early on after that breakup, I just went on a writing tear after the relationship ended. You know, San Francisco was great for for writing at that time. I was working at Banana Republic. Mm -hmm. I was working on the shipment crew. Mm -hmm. So I'd get up at 5, or get up at 4.30, leave the house at 5. 5.30, I'd be at work unpacking boxes, unloading trucks. And it was beautiful because I'd be off by 2, and I'd been physically exerting all this energy. You know, I worked in retail, but not like the kind of retail you think. It's like this very physical labor that goes on behind the scenes. And I would just go to the cafe, and nobody would be there. And I would just write. I wrote like three scripts in like maybe like the four months after that relationship ended. And one of them was Medicine for Melancholy. I'd seen this Claire Denis film called Friday Night, which Mm -hmm. is about a one-night stand that starts with a traffic strike, very French. But that couple is a bit older. They're probably in their early 40s. And I thought... They have no pretense about what's going to happen after this one night stand. If they were younger, they might think there was a possibility of something more substantial. And I thought, oh, that would be a very cool mm-hmm. thing to undertake. And so blending those things with my feeling of San Francisco, that's how the movie came about. Who's Justin Barber? Justin Barber is a kid I went to film school with, with myself and Adela and James, Joy and Nat, all these people from Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And he and Wes Ball had this company called Oddball Animation. Actually, it's the company that put Wes on the map. He made that short film that then got him the Maze Runner series. But they were doing these behind-the-scenes featurettes, like animated things. So I think on Ocean's 13, there's an animated piece about Ponzi schemes <laughs> on the DVD. And that the money they, they got paid for that, Justin flew up to San Francisco because I sent him the script for medicine. And he said, well, could you make it for this? And he wrote it down on a napkin. And it was like all the money he had from the Ponzi animation. Which was like about 13, 13 grand. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, and yeah, I can make a movie for 13 grand. Let's do it. Was Justin somebody <laughs> that you'd been buddies with at FSU or only you learned about afterwards? No, Justin and I almost got kicked out of FSU together <laughs> because we were doing a documentary on this group that was protesting a sweatshop labor at, at, at the school. Very. Yeah. Anyway, and and, and, and yeah, yeah. And, and we just we kept filming and we never finished the doc, and so we right. we together almost got kicked out of film school. Uh, so yeah, Justin's a good guy. So he he puts up the thirteen grand. You enlist all these other FSU friends to make it, and then over the course of two weeks, you guys turned out this movie. Which, by the way, when we say two weeks. You continued working at Banana Republic during that period? I did, yeah. So you're just doing your, your 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then go and do this? No, I, I took as, you know, we have three five-day shoot weeks. And so I just, I told them I'm going to use all my sick days. <laughs> and so I did just two days a week gotcha. while we were making the film. And 
the way it was described in the in the parlance of way back in 2008, this was a DIY do-it-yourself. Is that your yeah, feeling as it well? Was, it was a five-person crew of a film made in 15 days. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely DIY. Do you accept the that you know the way some people described it as they said it was part of this mumblecore movement as well? I would because uh, I'd seen Joe Swanberg and Aaron Katz films primarily, mm-hmm. and Andrew Wojcicki, and I thought. You know, the reason why we talk, I'll go back earlier, why yeah. we didn't submit to tell you, right? Mm-hmm. It's because these filmmakers were making these films and taking them to South by. Right. You know, I'd heard about Matt Dentler. I was, was like, well, go. I'm going to make a film like these guys make it and I'm going to take it to South by and I'm going to show it to Matt Dentler. And, and that's exactly sure what enough, we did. Yeah, that's what you did. I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But I, I just, from the most complimentary of places, I have a question here about so Medicine for Melancholy feels a little bit like the before films. Yes, I and, know where this is going. And Moonlight feels a little bit like the boyhood films. Was Richard Linklater a huge influence for you? Richard Linklater was a huge influence, yeah. more on medicine than on, than on Moonlight. Okay. I would say Moonlight was already written and in, in pre-production Pre-boyhood. when Boy, when Boyhood <laughs> came out. When it did come out, I was like, oh, okay, well, there we yeah. go. But Moonlight was well, definitely... Great minds think alike. You know? I what know, I know. Medicine was absolutely influenced by the Before series. Interesting. So you now take Medicine for Melancholy South by, you have this premiere. It was really wonderfully received by those who saw it, but not many saw it, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, and it also came out just as the economy was going down the toilet. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder, as a result of all these different things that were going on, how much of an impact did it have on your life and career afterwards? It had a a huge impact, especially if you're the kind of person who likes to look back and and sort of find the linearity and the madness of life. You know, I'm still with the same agent that Mm -hmm. I had in 2008. Yeah, as a result of that. After medicine, I signed the CAA with a guy named Jay Baker, you know, who's been my agent for the entire time. You know, I actually met my manager uh, named Jewel Ross, who I wasn't with at the time, who I'd only joined up with in, I think, 2013. But a lot of things were set into place. You know, I had a deal at Focus Features working with John Lyons and James Seamus on a very cool film Mm -hmm. that we never could quite get right. And so I learned a lot. Could that one still happen? It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> what was it about? Uh, it was about Stevie Wonder and time travel. It was like a <laughs> eternal sunshine of the spotless Stevie mind. <laughs> it, I mean, for a guy who made a $13,000 film, it was a lot to, yeah. chew, to chew on. Yeah. But I love those guys because they, they told me to, to swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. And I did. But the fences were a bit beyond my reach at the time. And so what ended up happening was that between Medicine for Melancholy and Moonlight, which is a lot of M's, there were these eight years. And I, I, I wonder if you can break down the different things that you were doing to pay the bills during those years and how you felt at that time. Were you a happy guy? Were you frustrated? I, I was not a happy guy. I was, yeah. I was quite frustrated and I had to eat a big slice of humble pie. You know, I stopped working at Banana which, by the way, I've often described as the best job I've ever had in my life, that job. Yeah, it was. I was just working with really interesting people. The guy who shot the still photography on Moonlight, including the poster, is a guy I met working at Banana Republic. Wow. So, but, but I stopped working there, and then I had to go back and start working there again because I didn't have any money. And I did a little, little bit of car, carpentry. Mm-hmm. I was like a stagehand for a little bit. And then finally, Justin Barber, a producer on Medicine for Melancholy, slash financier, I guess mm-hmm, I should say, mm-hmm. he got together with a couple other friends and we started a commercial company called Strike Anywhere Films, making branded content short films up in the Bay Area. In the middle of that, things with the Stevie Wonder Project at Focus looked pretty clear like they weren't going to happen. Mm-hmm. I adopted a memoir that I thought would happen and then that didn't happen. Whose memoir? It was uh, by Bill Clegg called Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man. Okay. And the last thing you would think Barry Jenkins would do, it's very white, 
very upper class literary society. It was an amazing project, mm. but I just couldn't agree with the producer I was working mm-hmm. with on it. And so I'd say people say eight years, I think five years. There was a five year period where there was a lot of promise and then very not very quickly, because if it was quickly, it would have been different, but very slowly, like almost imperceptibly, all that promise just eroded. And I was at the bottom of the Barry Jenkins uh, barrel, I guess. And and doing shorts, right? Commercials. Yeah, you know, it was it was cool. Every now and then, a short film would pop up, and I'm, you know, I like to I like to make things, yeah, and so sure. and and I kind of like filmmaking challenges. Mm-hmm. And so there was this Bloomingdale's thing, and I was like, well, you only have one day to shoot. I was like, all right, great. I'm gonna go to New York, a city I've never made anything in, and, and film something for one day about Bloomingdale's. <laughs> awesome. I like that challenge. Was there in that? gap not a gap because you were doing things but you just weren't fully satisfied yourself you felt it seems like there were th- other things you wanted to be doing uh, i wanted to be making more features yeah was there ever a point where you just got so bummed about things that you thought about just dropping no, filmmaking or you no, knew I, you no absolutely absolutely oh, really? yeah i think in that four and a half five year range it just seemed like everything i touched like this memoir for example i was really passionate about this mm-hmm. thing I put a lot into it. I didn't get paid to do this. Or I got paid very little, I should say. I was really excited about it. I thought, this thing works, you know? Mm -hmm. I know how to make this. I can make it at a really good number. Mm -hmm. This is going to be my next feature. And then, in a way I don't want to talk about, it just went away very rapidly. And I was like, wow, okay, I guess I'm done. I was Mm -hmm. like, I guess I'm done. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the plan B, not plan B the company, but these things with commercials, yeah. yeah, had become the plan A, you know? And it was satisfying in a certain way, but it wasn't satisfying in another way. Because they, they pay nicely, but it's not what you wanted. To, it wasn't yeah. an expression of your own sensibility. Meanwhile, in the in the midst of this kind of period of, of frustration and, and a lot of disappointments, you first heard about Terrell Alvin McCraney's unproduced play in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. Mm-hmm. How and when? There was a guy named Andrew Havia, who's a co-producer on Moonlight. He's a kid from Miami who also went to Florida State Film School. Not the same time as me. He's a bit younger than me. But he actually just happened to be in San Francisco on day one of the Medicine for Melancholy shoot. He came out in PA. Mm -hmm. And when the movie came out, he was honestly pissed. He was like, why is a Miami guy making movies about San Francisco? Mm -hmm. And so I got to give this kid a lot of credit. I call him a kid. He's like 30, but I call him a kid. Because he just got it set in his mind that he was going to find a way to get me back to Miami to make a film there. There's this group called the Borscht, Borscht Film Corp, or, and they do this thing called the Borscht Film Festival, mm-hmm. like, like the Russian soup. It's just these <laughs> gnarly Miami kids who just want to make movies in and about Miami. And so he was just looking for stuff, and he was the first one to read in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue, and he knew this thing about my mom that listeners will know from the, from the very first question you asked mm-hmm. that not a lot of people knew at that time. Right. Everybody knows it now. Right. And so when he read Terrell's piece, he just saw... This connection. At that point, none of us knew that Terrell and I had gone to the same schools, that we were like damn near the same age. And both grew up in the same... The same neighborhood, exactly. Liberty, Liberty Square. Square. He just he just knew this one thing about our moms, mm-hmm. and so he sent it to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, who wrote this? Mm-hmm. And when and why? Did you not know I nev- of him? I never heard of Terrell. Yeah. I never heard of Terrell. Yeah. And that was how the whole thing began. This must be a, a strange feeling for him because the play itself was never produced right no, no so along with the the guys that wrote everybody comes to rick's which ended up becoming casablanca but also another unproduced wow. play it's just like wow. you hear these stories but in this case were you when you read it were you immediately sure you wanted to that this was something you could make into a not film? immediately because the, the form of it is so radically different than the form of the film 
it was like a puzzle. All these pieces were just like everywhere. There was a, a continuity that worked within the prism of the piece itself. But seeing that on screen, I was like, no, I just, I couldn't, you know, I had to like get away from it. Cause this was a very slow process. I think the first time I read it was in 2011. And then it was like, you know, it kind of just sat there for like a full year. And then Andrew, Andrew Havia, co-producer, just so persistent, he would just every six months or so just bring it back up. Nigeria, you know, yeah. yeah, I think you need to read this thing again. And and that's when Adela Romanski, she had gone through a bad experience on a film she was producing, or she was going to produce, excuse me, she never produced it, so do not do not check her credits for this <laughs> film. And she, by the way, was was already at this point married to James she Laxton? Was, they were not married not, yet, okay. but they were they had been together for like eight years at that Since point. Since FSU. Since FSU, yeah. yeah. And she called me up and said, hey, we need to find a movie to work on together. And I had this list of things in Moonlight. was I hadn't written it yet, but it was on that list. And that was when I started looking at it again and again. And then finally started working with Terrell on it. And your reservations mainly were that it felt a little too close to home? That was part of it. It felt too close to home personally for me. I think also too creatively. I just didn't know where it belonged. Is it is it a stage piece? Is it a film piece? You know, I just couldn't. The, the the shape of it didn't immediately present itself. And Terrell's a very, you know, he's got a very unique voice. Mm-hmm. And so it was very hard to, like, really get in there and see, okay, where does that voice, where's that line mm-hmm. that connects the audience to the screen for this thing? And then finally, you know, it came to me. I had this eureka moment. And so January 2013, I've got is when Adela was nudging you to, to go after this. And mm-hmm. you then go to Telluride in... August 2013 and and have this encounter with Plan B folks. At that time, had you already tried to tackle the adaptation or were you saying this might be an interesting adaptation when you talk to Plan B? At at that point, I had already talked. The the first draft was done at that point. Okay, Like I'm I'm the kind of guy, I'm not going to talk about something until there's something like tertiary that exists that gotcha. I can show you. But Terrell and I had been working for like the last half of 2012. So you met, on, you got together and met. We got together. We were talking about the new structure of it, you know, story points and things like that. And then into 2013 is when Adela and I were very seriously, all right, you should go and do it. Yeah. You know, you, know, you and Terrell, as you mentioned, share a lot of things in common. But I guess the main difference is that he's gay and you are not. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of parts of society and the black community, I guess, has got to be included with this homosexuality remains quite stigmatized and and when you're coming off of you know you're now trying to make your first feature in eight years eight years Mm -hmm. was that of concern to you that you're going to be making a story that there's no guarantee at all that it doesn't on paper sound like the safest bet you know i'm 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 an idealist and so initially thought never occurred to me. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until a friend, who, sh- who shall remain unnamed, because yeah. I think they were trying to look out for my best interest, yeah, yeah. it wasn't until a friend said exactly that to me yeah. that I even thought about it. Yeah. I was like, oh, I I see what you mean. No, this is not the ideal calling card second feature. <laughs> yes, I, I understand where you're coming from. But then I was like, okay, I'm going to get on with it. You know? And I you'd lived in San Francisco. You'd, you'd certainly, it wasn't stigmatized in your view. Exactly. And, and, and also, too, I thought some of the, the stigma, I don't, stigmatize is, is one thing. I like to say taboo, mm-hmm, I think, is, is, mm-hmm. is better for me. I think part of that was because of the invisibility of certain narratives. You know, I tell this story of during the casting process, you know, one of, one of the parents in the film had this just beautiful thing to say about the script. You know, she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a devout, devoutly religious person, and, but I'm also black, and I work amongst a lot of white people. 
And, and sometimes I'll have coworkers say, I love black people. And then she goes and I will say, but have you been to their houses? Mm-hmm. Have you met any of their friends? You know, you know, do you know them outside of the mm-hmm. places where you have to know them? Mm-hmm. And then she said, oh, and as a Christian, I say I have no problem with gay people, but I don't really know any. I've never been to anyone's house. You know, I don't know anyone's relatives. You know, I don't know what they yearn for. And if reading the script can get me to a place where I recognize that, then I think that, you know, we should be involved. Mm-hmm. And I had already had that same sort of conversation with myself and it just reminded me that oh these narratives and here I am I'm a visual storyteller I've never had an LGBTQ character in any of my work and yet I consider myself an ally Mm -hmm. to these causes so I felt like the taboo was was a part of something that I was participating in because I wasn't creating these narratives where these characters are centralized you know where we can see that they're they're human beings you know like like anyone else you know and because my life and Tarot's life was so similar yeah. there was this very dark thing that was in my head which was if i can't fully identify with this character then i'm saying his sexuality is such a large part of who he is that in some ways I'm, I'm acknowledging that it makes him inhuman to me because i can't identify with him because of this one thing it was ridiculous to even conceive for a lot of people, though, that had been a hurdle they just couldn't get past because, I mean, I'd like to think that I've seen, you know, most of the important movies of the last few years. The only thing that I think even remotely tried to tackle, you know, this kind of territory was this movie Pariah, D. Reese's mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. And that was that was women as opposed to men. Were you aware of any precedent for what you were trying to do? No, I wasn't. You know, and, and I will say this is why I give so much credit to Terrell. I feel like Terrell had been incredibly honest and authentic in his grappling with uh, with these characters and I felt like a large part of, of working on this project for me was preserving his voice mm-hmm. and getting to a place where the the think piece issues above the film mm-hmm. were outside the process of making it I was just trying to hone in and capture Terrell's voice and his intentions and so the main things that changed in the course of you adapting the script were structural hugely structural yeah why did you decide to employ this three act structure that you did uh, it just felt to me you know the the source material goes like one two three one two three you'd see the, the you see little wake up sharon wake up black wake up mm-hmm. little go to school black go to school sharon go to the corner i'm, I'm mixing it up a little mm-hmm. bit but it was like mm-hmm. one two three one two three mm-hmm. and it was interesting because there was a shared consciousness amongst the characters and yet the reflection that i feel like the character has in the third chapter was immediately clear because you would go right back to the first person experience of him as a child. And I thought for the audience, the best way to take this journey was going to be to tell it in turn. You know, this this moment when he's a child, this moment when he's a teenager, this moment when he's a man. And I felt like one of the commentaries of the piece was how the world is forcing these young men from the neighborhood that Terrell and I are from. I can't speak for all young men, but I think it does apply to young men of all ethnicities and sexualities, how the world is giving us these the stimuli, you know, these reactions to our presentations of ourselves and then how that makes us reshape who we are. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, chapter by chapter, you see literally when a new character, when the, a new actor appears on screen as a character, how he has chosen to change himself. And I thought doing it in these the structure was the best way to achieve and that. was that also why you made a, a conscious decision, despite having months of interactions with the three great actors who play Sharon, to not have them interact or coordinate their performances because these are essentially 
very different people at very different times of their lives? Yeah, I mean, it, it was twofold. I mean, one, a, a part of the process, I mean, everybody knows the budget now, you know, it's a million and a half dollars. Mm-hmm. And it was a union show. So we, you know, we, we abided by the regulations. You know, we just couldn't afford to have rehearsals. But I still could have gotten these guys together to have them meet, to do like a, a very nitty gritty workshop. Uh, but I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt like, again, part of the commentary was about how they're fundamentally the same person at their core, but they have become a different person. They have actively chosen to reshape themselves. And so I didn't want Travante Rose to try to carry the weight on his shoulders the same way that, that uh, Ashton Sanders does in story two. I just didn't want that. And also, too, it's a very present tense performance. Everybody in the film, it kind of had to be because there was no rehearsal. And so I think if you give an actor all this time to rehearse, especially with, with a film like this, it would have been very short rehearsal time. Now they're straining to remember yeah. these things from the rehearsal and they're not in the present tense. It's interesting because on medicine, I wrote these Bibles for the characters, this huge biography. And I could tell sometimes where the actors were trying to bring or be beholden to these things I had written in the bio and not be holding to the things that were happening in the moment. So in this story, where there's actually way more background for the characters to need to know, I took it off the table yeah. and thought, oh, we'll try the other tactic, where we're just going to do everything in the present, yeah. in the first person. And I think it worked. You know, And I felt like our casting director and our cinematographer would help me be the control to unite the performances across the three actors. Speaking of casting, how did you end up, first of all, with these three folks who played the same character, Chiron, and that's Alex Hebert, Ashton Sanders, and Travante Rhodes. And then how did you also end up with the other principal actors in this, Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris, who are now Oscar nominees, and also Andre Holland, and first-time actor Janelle Monet. This is, I, I guess I'm really curious just how you ended up with these mm-hmm. guys. Yeah, you know, a part of it is Walter Murch, which is a weird thing for me to say, yeah. but I read his book in the blink of an eye yeah. in film school, you know. 11-time Academy nominee, Richard Portman, he's a sound guy who just passed away recently, Mm. unfortunately. He actually won for sound mixing for The Deer Hunter. Mm. He was just very hardcore about, you know, being as, paying as much attention to the sound as the image. And so he gave us this book in the blink of an eye because he knew Walter. And Walter talked about the eyes being the window into the soul and cinema. And how his whole approach to the craft of movie making was rooted around actors' eyes. And so I was looking for that. As far as the main character, the three different actors playing Kevin and playing Chiron, I was looking for this feeling in their eyes. And that was how we landed on Ashton Sanders, Travante Rhodes, and Alex Hibbert. Because otherwise, yeah, they don't necessarily look that much they, alike. They, they look quite different. But even in the poster, you'll see their eyes match up perfectly. But And that's a physical thing. But I think mm-hmm. even the feeling, the intent in their eyes mm-hmm. matched up. The rest of it, you know, Mahershala Ali was our first, last, and only choice. For that part, Adela had worked on him on a movie called Kicks, where she saw him do things differently than he had done them in House of Cards. This was a short, or this was no, it's a feature film by Justin Tipping that came out last year. Okay, that he had, he had acted in, and she thought he was wonderful. He was a fan of medicine, mm-hmm. and his background was different than I expected, so he could identify with the character. Yes, Naomi came to us. It was a, I'll give credit. It was Plan B's idea. Yeah. you know, I I did not think of her for this part, although we were looking for a very skilled actor. Uh, because she's doing something very different than what the other actors are doing, which is she has to make herself into a different person at each stage of the mm-hmm. film rather than being embodied by the a different only person. person who's actually in each act. 
she she is the rock of the film and notoriously we did all of her work in three days Amazing. was not my intention no but we have visa issues right. and so we just had to jam no, it this all was pre trump <laughs> and i know, I know. you know the, the, the cool thing is marco right. rubio solved this problem for us really yeah 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 you know he's the state of florida Love you know? marco comes marco. through yeah <laughs> let, let the record show <laughs> yeah you did not say that, that. i did not yes. refer to no, him as no, no, marco. no 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 and then janelle our casting director yesi ramirez janelle auditioned for star trek and yes, he had seen her and she had made a huge impression. And so uh, we were just batting around ideas. And she's like, what about Janelle Monet? And I was like, well, what about Janelle Monet? Mm-hmm. The, the, the space age <laughs> or arachnoid futurist R&B singer. Right. And she's like, no, no, no. But, you know, you got to see this. We called Janelle up and I saw her and she was not what I was expecting. Yeah. You know, and she was wonderful. It's great. She she just got an honor at Santa Barbara Film Festival that yeah. I was present for. She remembers the seat number that she was sitting in on the plane where she read your script and became dead set on doing it. This script, to to my surprise and delight, it just moved people. Like I said, you know, it landed on Damon Lindelof's desk and that's how I got, you know, booked on The Leftovers, you know. It just engendered so much goodwill that people, instead of going, I don't know about this black art house, gay hood, Mm -hmm. triptych structured movie (laughs) with no exposition and no flashbacks. But I've read the script, you know, and I know how it moves me. And that was that was pretty much how every every door that was locked, the script unopened it. And just to show that the thread continues through the present day, how many FSU people were involved with Moonlight? I think at the top, top, maybe like seven of us, you know, myself, the producer, David Romansky, the cinematographer, James Laxton, both editors, Joy McMillan and Nat Sanders. And there were a few people who worked on Soundpost that were FSU was also. Oh, and Andrew Havia, co-producer. And Joy McMillan, now the first black woman ever nominated for first Best Film First black woman editing. ever nominated for Best Film Editing. I think the second black person ever nominated for Best Film Editing. I never thought this movie would, would be a part of something that's history making, but there you go. So for just 1.5 million with just 25 days, and is this possibly true? Just one camera? Is that actually true? Yeah, there were. There, it's a single camera shoot. Yeah, so, single camera shoot. So with which, those, which, 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 which man? This is why when people laud the performances, yeah, I, I, I am proud to the ends of the earth and, and thankful to the actors because there's a lot of great performance that's not in the film right. because they all were fully there for each other, and yet right. we can only capture one side at a time. Wow. So that's how tight of a budget and time frame you guys were working with. You you go to tell this story, which literally hits hits close to home for you, because I think you shot it. You said like a block from where you actually grew up in Miami. Yeah. Was the whole experience having a scene where a kid is boiling water so that he can have a hot bath, things that you've said you personally did. Was it cathartic or painful or just dizzying for you the whole the whole thing it, it was all of the above you know it was mostly cathartic I'll, I'll say especially because you know like you know i wanted we talk about the boiling water scene you know i wanted that that character to be, to be played by a non-actor by a kid who's actually from miami and so watching alex do those things it wasn't like watching a performer do them it was kind of like watching real life and when he takes the bath and he squirts in the dishwashing liquid for bubble <laughs> bath you know there were so many people on set who were like you, know, you could tell people were, were, were feeling that real thing. So, yes. yeah, it was it was beyond cathartic. But I think some of it was very painful, too. But I think that pain elevated the uh, the craft, uh, to be brutally honest. There were just certain things that I didn't plan in my head. But in seeing, especially with Naomi Harris, seeing Naomi do some of these things, it kind of elevated the craft and pushed mm-hmm. me to a place um, where I didn't think I, I could get to. And, in fact, maybe you didn't know this going in, but a lot of the other people that were involved with this movie from... 
child actors through people on the crew actually, I guess, later told you that it was it was something they very much related to as well? Yeah, I remember the first scene that we filmed with Ashton Sanders and Naomi Harris. She actually came to me because she was worried about him. And he had worked for about a week and a half at that point. He's and the middle. He, he plays the middle Chiron. But all his work at that point had been with the, the other the other actor, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he hadn't acted with, with his mom yet. And Naomi showed up and she was bringing it. You know, she was just fully present. And I could tell that Ashton, there was something he hadn't told me. Mm-hmm. And it was that his, his mom had gone through similar things. Mm-hmm. And he was having a very, we'll say cathartic experience. And we had to pause for a bit, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to get back to a place where where we're not exploiting ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm not trying to have people bleed mm-hmm. on my set, you know, or cry blood tears, I'll say, to speak figuratively, um, but that we could actually, you know, do the work, you know, um, but recognize that this pain was mm-hmm. going to allow us to have even greater empathy for the characters and for the scenes. And then you've got Mahershala who says that he grew up around drug dealers and that he, you know, people say, oh my God, what made you play him as a guy who's actually a a good guy in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And he's like, people don't set out to be bad people, you know, and or do bad things. And the guy that he plays, Juan, is much more in line with the with the sorts of drug dealers that he saw growing up that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than most movies show. So just to add that. And then, you know, just I wanna give you the opportunity to to also clarify one thing that I think there's been a misunderstanding for some people. Some people have remarked they're like there's no white people in this movie at all. Mm-hmm. But in fact, you've said in your own childhood, you you didn't really meet a white person until you went to college, right? Mm-hmm. A white person that wasn't a teacher. That wasn't, was, a teacher, that wasn't right. Miss Pamela Gilzo Rodriguez. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just uh, Miami's a very self-segregated city in certain ways. And so the black neighborhood, especially when Toronto and I grew up, was very, very, very radically black. Mm-hmm. And you lived your life within those eight, those 12 blocks. You and know? of course, it goes the other way, too. I don't know how many people that are white in Miami have met somebody from Liberty City, right? Exactly. And, and it wasn't the idea of removing white people from the narrative. It was about having a fidelity to the way Toronto and I grew up. And, and there are a few white people in the film. Yeah. They're just not primary characters. No, maybe in like in the, the rehab center. There's rehab a few people center, walking in the background. And the which, diner. And, and the diner, which for me, the rehab center, that was on purpose. You know, when my mom went into the halfway house, our, her best friend was, I mean, the most southern handlebar <laughs> mustache, cowboy boot wearing white guy named AJ. And he was amazing. Wow. Amazing. And so it was important to me to, to at least have that element yeah. of the film be diverse. I want to say about this, though. You know, I, I watched a lot of Warren Carl films mm-hmm. coming up, and those films didn't have white white characters also. They didn't have black characters either. And yet there was nothing about the makeup of his films that kept me from identifying with those characters. Mm-hmm. And so I, it never was a question to me of whether or not people who weren't black would, would be able to identify with these characters despite the fact that there are no primary white characters in the film. It just wasn't intellectual. I never even considered yeah, it. Yeah. When you found out that this movie was going to have its world premiere at Telluride, what was, and then when it did, what were those moments like for you? You know, I was here when I found out, and I tried to... So I, I didn't even talk to Julie about it, yeah. Julia Tom. I let A24 handle mm-hmm. the whole thing. I didn't want them to feel pressured because I work there, that they were going to play the film. I've had short films that didn't get programmed there mm-hmm. before I started programming the shorts. Now I obviously wouldn't even submit a film that because right. that, I'm the curator. Right. <laughs> but I stayed away from it. And so when it came, man, it was the biggest relief. I have this fundamental block that I, maybe I'll always have. Maybe I'll get past it. But I am essentially Chiron. I grew up like this kid. And there were just certain certain ceilings that I never can imagine myself breaking through. And to me, Telluride is a very hallowed place. I just, I never imagined that I would, 
I would screen work there. So when it came, it was an extreme surprise. Just like many of these things that are happening with Moonlight, when they happen, they genuinely are an extreme surprise. Because for whatever reason, I can't get through this block that Chiron does not grow up and make a film that gets eight Academy Award nominations, mm-hmm. you know? But, well, but I guess he does. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a happy, you know, I think there's a lot of concern which you have addressed at, about, you know, people that grow to love this kid where you said that at the end where we see him is, quote, what the worst possible outcome could be, the total submergence of self, close quote. So the nice thing here at is... At the opening of the third chapter. At the opening Not of the third. Not at the end. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so it's nice, though, to see this this sense of, you know, if you are Chiron, that there is a, a happier trajectory beyond that. But the, the kind of thing that I know made you very happy and, and maybe surprised was that everywhere from Telluride through the Upper West Side of New York, people have responded to this movie in ways that maybe were you wouldn't have assumed they would. It's, it's amazing, man. I, I was in I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago because you know, the movie's opening there with, with, with DCM. And we had this, this small screening and this guy stood up, not a film person. And he was like, you know, I'm from, I'm not from Berlin. I'm from like this rural part of Germany. I'm from like farm country. And 20 minutes into that film, I didn't see Alex Hibbert. You know, I saw myself. And I was like, this is unreal. Like, this is the thing that I've always wanted to... Like, I feel like cinema gave a lot to me. It made the world very small, especially watching all these foreign films and feeling very connected to these faraway places. I realize now where I'm from is far away for a lot of people as well. And these characters especially, because they're often at the margins of a narrative, not at the center of it, are just as far away, if not farther. And yet, to have people cross that distance and identify with the movie and the characters, you know, that means everything, everything, everything. Last thing really is about where you are right now and, and where you're heading. So how does somebody follow such a wonderful experience like this? You know, do you know what's what's coming next? Mm-hmm. And also, if it's not too personal to ask, did you and your mom come to some sort of peace in the way that Chiron seems to with his? And has she seen and offered any reaction to Moonlight? Yeah, we've come to a piece for sure. I mean, and yeah. I think we even had. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have made this film yeah. if we hadn't come to yeah. c- come to that place. You know, I didn't want her permission, even though the movie's not her story. Mm-hmm. I wanted her permission to tell it because I knew I'd end up sitting across someone like yourself yeah. <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> but, but we've already reached that point. She still has not watched the film, and it's not my place to rush her mm-hmm. into watching the film. I, I will say I haven't been fair because I haven't been there to watch it with her. And maybe when I am, you know, that'll be the thing. But she's going to be watching the Oscars, though. I, uh, she, oh, man. <laughs> she, I will say, though, as, as she's not an Internet savvy person. Right. And yet somehow she knows everything that happens with this film. <laughs> there have been articles that I didn't know about that right. she knows about. In particular, uh, Naomi Harris. She follows Naomi very, very closely. That's great. And, and I will say she's approved Naomi's approach mm-hmm. to playing the character, even sight unseen. So there you go. Wow. Well, well, I mean, there's worse things than being played by Naomi Harris. This she's is pretty true. This great. is true. And, and I will say my memory of that time, Naomi nails. And that's all I'll say about mm-hmm. her performance. Next for me is the Colson Whitehead book, The Underground Railroad. Working on that, it's going to be uh, a beast of, of an endeavor. But, and this uh, is going to be a film or a TV? It's, it's going to be a limited series. Okay. But as far as feature films, which I still very much plan yeah, to yeah, work yeah. on, you know, there's a few different things that I'm working on. We'll see what shakes loose first. But No eight-year wait again. No, no eight-year <laughs> wait, hopefully. And you know what? I, I didn't realize this before, but there are a lot of people who see what's happening with me, and they feel very very inspired. And I realize I have to keep working in the way that I've been working because it's not about me in a certain sense. I just realize people see these things and it gives them hope. 
and uh, I'm all about that hope giving. So I got to keep making stuff. For sure. And I, I just want to say on the record, what I've said to you just when I've seen you at something like our, our recent Hollywood Reporter nominees night, which is that quite apart from the movie, which is obviously wonderful, it's been very nice to get to cross paths with you and Mahershala and Naomi. And I really think that only because of what I do, I have the opportunity to meet a lot of the folks that are in this weird time of year. And some people are are, are more enjoyable to be around than others. You guys have been <laughs> absolutely the loveliest people. And so it makes it very easy to be happy for you and root for, for your continued success. So thank you for all this time. And, and it's an amazing story. Thank you, bro. Much appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.